Good morning, ladies. What a great morning it's been already. I don't know about you, but the worship music, the praise time, the opportunity to be in small groups, my favorite part of the morning. My favorite part of the morning. Thank you so much for being here. We've done it. We've made it um, through two semesters and uh, now 16 weeks of Isaiah, and I appreciate your faithfulness. I hope you had a great Easter. I had the opportunity to be here um, for the services on Saturday night, two services on Saturday night, and then on Easter morning there were five services, and all seven services were just glorious. It was the most um, delightful thing to see you and your families and so many people. All the services were just um, such a great worship experience and it caused me to take a little bit of a journey back over the last 30 years of Easter's at Christ Chapel as I stood out there you know on Saturday night and during the morning I started thinking about you know the the first uh, building we had Easter in was actually the old Texas Girls Choir building still up on Camp Bowie and uh, it was just tiny and one of the responsibilities I think that Uh, Ted had on his plate back then was to chase the rats and the mice out of the rooms that we used for the children's ministry. It was just, it was so rodent infested. I can't even believe we were willing to be there, but God had provided and we took advantage of it. And so that was where I remember first having Easter with Christ Chapel is in the girls choir building. And then next God uh, journeyed us, led us on to the uh, small sanctuary down at the other end, which was just kind of a standalone building back then. It didn't have all the things that are attached to it now. And what I remember about our first Easter down there is that the preaching was fabulous, but we couldn't afford new pew cushions. And so we had the old pew cushions that were ancient in there. And it felt like they were filled with golf balls. And so when you sat on them, you just thought, okay, I love what he's saying, but I'm going to have to get up. I just can't, I just can't sit here another minute. God provided new cushions before long, you know, thankfully. And so then as I I stood out there in the great room on Saturday night and Sunday. It was just um, such a blessing to see God's hand in this whole journey and how he's uh, brought us so far. And if you know that, um, and it's totally God, none of us that uh, were down at that Texas Girls Choir building ever had visions of this. I mean, I wish we had. I wish we had thought this is where God was taking us, but we just were happy to be together and chase the rats and mice out of the uh, rooms. But if you had trouble parking on Easter Sunday morning, you know that God's blessing continues because um, he's continuing to provide opportunity for us to have space for ministry and to worship him. And I think it's so fitting in light of thinking about the journey that uh, God has had Christ Chapel on on the last 30 Easter's to think about the journey that Isaiah has had all of us on for the last 16 weeks. And so before we jump into these two chapters, I want to just look back just a minute and just review a little bit before we close today. You know, as God's prophet primarily to Judah, which was the southern kingdom, Isaiah began his ministry during the difficult period in their history, which was the rise of the Assyrian nation and the decline of Israel. And that was around 739 BC. And 
his ministry continued. It began in the reign of King Uzziah. You've got a chart somewhere back from 15 weeks ago. It began during the reign of King Uzziah. And he continued to be God's prophet during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz. He was very influential in the reign of Hezekiah. And then tradition has it that he was actually martyred by King Manasseh. And these were really difficult, difficult years in Israel's history. It would have been a difficult uh, time in their history to be God's prophet. The northern kingdom actually fell completely to Assyria in 722 BC. And if you remember from our study back in 37, the chapter 37, the only thing that kept the southern kingdom from falling to Assyria back then was Hezekiah's prayers and how God showed up when King uh, of uh, Sennacherib um, was camped outside of Jerusalem waiting to attack. Hezekiah prayed and during the night 185,000 of Sennacherib's men died and so he left and Israel was saved by God's hand. As God's prophet, Isaiah unveils in these 66 chapters the full dimension, the full dimension of God's judgment on sin and the full dimension of God's plan for redemption and salvation. Isaiah has a lofty view of God. I hope that's one of the things that you've taken away from our study of Isaiah. He calls God the Holy One of Israel 25 times in these 66 chapters. And he reveals the documented and undeniable uh, truth that Israel has rebelled time and time and time again against the Holy One. And they have become an unholy nation of idol worship and they deserve the Holy One's judgment. Look on your verse sheet. Isaiah 1-4 is where we started. Ah, a sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Isaiah 2.11 talks about God's judgment. He says, The eyes of the arrogant man will be humbled and the pride of men brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. But along with Isaiah's pronouncement of God's judgment, which is what dominates the first 39 chapters of Isaiah that we looked at, we also see God's plan for salvation and redemption for his people. And he brings that about um, completely by his own hand. We read about that over and over again. Isaiah 44.3 says, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground, and I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. That's what God is going to do by his hand alone. Isaiah 45:17 says, But Israel will be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will never be put to shame or disgraced to ages everlasting. And in addition to what we learned about um, God's judgment on sin and his provision of redemption and salvation, there were some other great truths that we gleaned along the way, some significant truths for Israel's future that Isaiah told us in this journey from judgment to redemption. He tells about the future Babylonian captivity. That's what he's trying to say to them. Uh, If you don't turn from your sin, Babylon is going to come in here and carry you out. And of course, 
That is exactly what happens about a hundred years after Isaiah completes his prophecy. He also reveals the day of God's vengeance. We've talked a lot about that in the last couple of weeks in these last chapters. It's where he's going to bring judgment. God is going to bring judgment on all the nations and all the peoples of the world who refuse to accept his gift of salvation when Christ comes the second time. Now, God is going to use, did use Cyrus of Persia to be the instrument of salvation to redeem Israel from the captivity that they had in Babylon. But it, was going to be, it is going to be the Messiah, the suffering servant, who will be his instrument of salvation for Israel. And of course, he reveals it's going to be the suffering servant will be the instrument of salvation for the Gentiles as well. And that was a new revelation to the nation of Israel. That those who had been excluded um, from God's family are now going to be included in God's blessing and salvation. So some of our lessons over the last 15 weeks together have been about God's holy character, which is going to bring judgment on sin. And that was that chunk primarily 1 through 39. In chapters 40 through 55, we learned about God's mercy, which is greater than his judgment. And it's going to bring redemption and salvation through the suffering servant, the Messiah, in two separate advents. And then in these last 10 chapters, 56 through 66, have been about God's plans to establish his righteous kingdom on earth with a righteous ruler and a righteous people. The millennial kingdom, ushered in by the second coming of Christ, is really the goal which Isaiah has been marching towards in these 66 chapters as he writes to the nation of Israel. And in these last two chapters, we're going to finish up talking about the culmination of all that God has for Israel. So open your Bibles together to chapter 65, and we're going to start in verse 17. Verses 17 through 19. Isaiah says, Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. In the um, contemporary worship service on Sunday, actually it was Saturday night that I was in it, we sang a great song and the title of it was Oh Happy Day. And the second they flashed that title on the screen, this passage of scripture came to my mind because I thought, oh, happy day. This is exactly what Isaiah is talking about. And I can only imagine, can't you, how excited after writing all of the things that he's had to write about judgment and idol worship and the graphic scenes of the day of God's vengeance, how excited he was to finally receive this prophecy himself and be able to write about the oh happy day that Israel was going to experience. A new day and a new life is coming for Israel. And of course what he's describing here is the millennial kingdom where a renewed Jerusalem is going to... um, be Israel's new home as God renovates the heavens and the earth and prepares for his nation to be gathered together together again in the new Jerusalem. Now, in Isaiah's prophecy, he doesn't distinguish between the millennial kingdom that he's talking about here and the eternal state which God 
actually talks, which John actually talks about in Revelations uh, chapters 21 and 22, the end of the Revelation. And commentators, when you study this, the commentators that um, write about all this complicated end time stuff aren't really sure whether Isaiah hasn't been given an understanding that the millennial kingdom will come before the eternal state. And that's why he doesn't distinguish between the millennial kingdom, which is the thousand-year reign of Christ, and the eternal state. Or, in his mind, because it's going to be millennial kingdom, then eternal state are going to be both part of the end times, that he just doesn't spell it out here. I mean, maybe Isaiah isn't a detail guy and he thinks, hey, it's all one big thing, it's all going to be great and I'm not going to confuse anyone here. So we don't really know why he doesn't make the distinction here when he talks about um, the millennial kingdom. It is actually John at the end of Revelation who gives us the best description of the eternal state. And the eternal state is what follows the thousand year reign of Christ that Isaiah is talking about here. He seems to be talking about here. And let me just give you a little timeline so hopefully I haven't confused you. Um, the eternal state is what will begin after the close of the millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom will close when Satan is loosed one more time to come and deceive those that were born during the millennial kingdom and may not have a true faith in the living God even though they have been perceived to have one. Um, Satan will have an opportunity to deceive them. Those that are deceived will mount one more attack on Jerusalem, but um, God is going to have nothing of it, and he rains fire down on them and ends it completely once and for all. And then Satan will be judged and cast into the Um, lake of fire forever never to be let out again and then we have the great white throne judgment of the wicked all the um, uh, people that haven't been resurrected up until now because they were the wicked dead are going to be resurrected and go before the great white throne judgment and then we have the eternal state that John talks about in Revelation 21 and 22 where God does completely recreate the heavens and the earth and there is um, uh, no more Satan and no more sin and no more death and no more babies being born. That's the eternal state. We're back in the millennial kingdom before all of that. Um, And let me say, I've lost my place right here, but the millennial kingdom is going to be a time of amazing joy and delight and gladness and renewal that Isaiah talks about here. It's definitely going to be an oh happy day for everyone that resides there. And we're going to read a little more about it right here in verses 20 through 25. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. He who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere youth. He who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the works of their hand. They will not toil in vain or bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord. They and their descendants with them. Before they call, 
I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. But dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Amen. It sounds like an oh happy day to me, doesn't it, uh, to you? These verses really lay out for us the quality of life that's going to exist in the millennial kingdom. Now, there are going to be those in the millennial kingdom that have glorified bodies, bodies like the resurrected uh, Jesus. Those of us that were raptured with the church before the tribulation, we're going to have glorified bodies just like Jesus did after his resurrection. And we will, of course, be in the millennial kingdom. The Old Testament saints that will have been resurrected before the beginning of the millennial kingdom, they're going to have glorified bodies. The people that were martyred during the... uh, tribulation, they'll be resurrected before the millennial kingdom. They're going to have glorified bodies. But then they're going to be the people that lived during the tribulation, that came to faith in Christ and survived um, the terrible disasters that went on during the tribulation. They're going to come into the millennial kingdom in earthly bodies. And that's why Isaiah talks here about longevity and length of life. because there is going to still be death for those that had earthly bodies in the millennial kingdom. Um, It doesn't appear from this scripture that those that came into the millennial kingdom in an earthly body are actually going to live the entire 1,000 years until um, Satan is loosed and the great white throne judgment and the eternal state comes in. It appears that they will actually live to be two, three, four, five, six hundred years old, just like in Genesis. Um, They won't be dying of um, cancer or tragedy and whatever. They will be dying just of having lived a long and glorious life. Um, So those that have earthly bodies will experience death. There will also be babies born to those who have earthly bodies during this Period. It talks here about the descendants being blessed and uh, babies. We won't have to worry about babies that are born and only live a short time. Babies that are born are going to experience long and lengthy um, lives. Life in the millennial kingdom, according to Isaiah, will consist of work which will be filled with joy and of raising families which is going to be without the pain and sadness of rebellion or divorce or those kind of things that we experience as pain in our life now. Uh, They're going to be building houses and planting vineyards and delighting in the things that come out of the work of their hands. But because of God's blessing, all of these things, having families and work and um, having a life, are going to be minus. They're going to be without the sorrow and the hardship and the tragedy and the pain. Can you imagine your life right now if it had nothing but God's joy and blessing in it? All of the things that we woke up at three this morning and worried about, you know, none of those exist anymore. Is that not incredible? Life in the millennial kingdom is going to be one of peace and joy and prosperity that has not been seen since the garden. Verse 23 here affirms for us that the people of the millennial kingdom are going to be a people that is blessed by the Lord and their descendants blessed with them. And we also see in verse 25 that the uh, effects of the fall in creation have been erased. Nature is no longer going to be man's enemy. There's no longer going to be um, 
time spent in the bathroom because of the tornadoes. That is going to be over with. Life is going to be lived in safety and harmony because nature will be living in safety and in harmony with all of us. But I think probably the best blessing of all in these verses about the millennial kingdom is actually verse 24, which highlights the perfect communion we're going to have with God in the millennial kingdom. Before the residents of the renewed Jerusalem call, God is going to answer. He's going to be there before you can even formulate it in your mind. He will have answered your prayers and given you your heart's delight. Um, Isaiah reveals a new life for Israel in these verses that contrasts with the life that they will be living as exiles in Babylon. So when you remember that he's writing these verses so that when the exiles come out of captivity, they're going to have them. And they're going to know that in the millennial kingdom, joy is going to be replacing the weeping and the crying that they've experienced as exiles and captives in Babylon. Long life is going to replace the um, sorrow and the death that they've experienced as exiles and captives in Babylon. And answered prayer is going to replace what they've experienced and cried out to be as God's silence. Peace and harmony is going to replace violence and oppression that Israel has long experienced. It is an oh happy day for Israel's future. So we made it to chapter 66. Here we are at the very end of the road together. And Isaiah continues to talk to the future exiles of Babylon about Israel's glorious future. About Israel's glorious future. One of your homework questions was about how does hope um, play out in your life? And what, what do you think of when you think of hope? Isaiah's writing about glorious Israel's glorious future to give the future exiles hope, to give all of us hope, and of course to um, make sure that we know that hope is um, the business that God is in each and every day. And um, so let's read chapter 66 together. The first thing that we see is that Israel's glorious future will be one where God continues to manage, to value humility, repentance, and obedience to his word in his people. These are qualities that are going to remain eternally important to God. So let's read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 66. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will be my resting place? Has not my hand made all these things so they came into being, declares the Lord. This is the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The first six verses of of chapter 66 to me actually were kind of a mini synopsis of Isaiah's whole message. And verse 1 and 2 tells us once more who God is. He's magic, majestic and powerful and sovereign creator. And what do you values above all else are a humble, repentant people who tremble at his word, who obedience is the hallmark and standard of their life. You know, we saw that back in chapter 57 also where Isaiah says, I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. When God's people are humble, contrite, 
repentant, obedient to his word. They will live in his presence and his blessings will never end. You know, and not only is that Isaiah's message, part of his message for the entire 66 chapters of um, Isaiah, it's really the message of the entire 66 books of the Bible, isn't it? That God values his people that are humble and obedient and repentant. God wants people to understand who they are in light of who he is. He wants them to have hearts that love his truth and follow hard after it. And then he wants people to have hearts that are repentant when they don't follow his truth. Um, That's Isaiah's message to Israel after the Babylonian captivity when they returned to Jerusalem and his message after the second coming of Christ when they live in a renewed Jerusalem in his presence. It's Humility, repentance, obedience. Jesus says this in Matthew 5 on your verse sheet. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The next thing that we see is Israel's glorious future with God is that God will always judge rebellion, no matter who it is or when it is. Verses 3 through 6. But whoever sacrifices a bull is like one who kills a man, and whoever offers a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. Whoever makes a grain offering is like one who presents pig's blood, and whoever burns memorial incense like the one who worships an idol. They have chosen their own ways, and their souls delight in their abominations. So I also will choose harsh treatment for them, and will bring upon them what they dread. For when I called, no one answered, and when I spoke, no one listened. They did evil in my sight, and chose what displeased me. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and exclude you because of my name have said, Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. Yet they will be put to shame. Hear that uproar from the city. Hear that noise from the temple. It is the sound of the Lord repaying his enemies and all they deserve. You know, verses 3 and 4 are a continuation of Isaiah's message of judgment that we've had throughout the whole book. The strange comparisons that he makes here between sacrificing an animal and murder point to the truth that um, a person who simply relies on ritual to satisfy God is detestable to him. He regards people who simply depend on rituals as worship um, as people to be the ones that do it their own way, that haven't really heard his message of, it's your heart that I want, not your ritualistic uh, worship. Um, And whether it's ritual or murder, both of those things are equally repulsive to him. And he gives the consequences in verse 4, which is God's discipline, his punishment and his silence. So from chapter 1 through chapter 66, Isaiah's message has not changed for Israel's past or their present or their future because their God does not change. Um, He is holy, and those who have humble and repentant, obedient hearts are going to have God's blessings. Those who rebel against him, choosing their own way over his, whether it's murder or simply rituals, um, are going to receive God's blessing, are going to receive God's judgment. In verses uh, 5 and 6 that we read here, 
God addresses the faithful who are obedient to his word and he gives them the assurance that everyone who has been ridiculed for their faith, everyone who's been excluded in some form or fashion uh, because of their genuine genuine, um, uh, faith, they're going to be put to shame. Anyone that has ever ridiculed someone for a genuine faith, God says here, will be put to shame. I saw a discur- disturbing discussion a few nights ago. Some of y'all may have seen it. It was on a just a popular news program that's on, and it was about the latest hot topic in liberal theological circles. You may have heard about this also. A discussion of, is there really a hell? And that's kind of out there now, is that there must, there couldn't really be a hell. And so they had a liberal theologian on the program, and he had written um, a book about it, and he was there to talk about why he, um, uh, there couldn't really be a hell. And in his point of view, uh, he argued that believing in hell makes God a monster who wants to torture people. Now, I, I watched this discussion with my jaw, my mouth hanging open for about half an hour. And during that half an hour, no one ever talked about the fact that God is a just and holy, righteous God that must punish sin. It's his character. We talked about this earlier. If he's faithful to who he is, then he must judge sin. And of course, no one ever talked about the fact the truth of God's mercy and how salvation is a free gift. And really, um, there's we can all escape the um, uh, reality of hell simply by taking that free gift. Um, the talk was, uh, it, it, it was so much nonsense about there being, um, there being there's, that if there is judgment for sinners, it makes people feel guilty and leads them to dysfunction. And then they have to go to counseling. Um, it was, yeah, it was, it, was, uh, it was the whole, so the bottom line to them was, is Christians should give up talking about hell because it's ruining people's lives. It's ruining people's lives. Uh, it's making them dysfunctional, and it's literally, they said this, it's filling the counselor's office. Our talk about a perfect, holy God who is going to judge sin is filling the counselor's office. And if we would just stop, then people's lives would be good. And when I heard that, I had been working on this and studying this, and I thought, thank you, God, you have said that um, the people that um, shame, that exclude those that have a genuine faith, that believe the word of God is real, that live their lives out, um, like this book says here, uh, we're not going to be put to shame, but everyone else is going to be put to shame. You know, two groups existed in Isaiah's day, and they still exist today. One group worships God for his sake, because he is God, and he deserves our worship. The other group participates in it simply um, for what they get out of it. And they make it what they want it, um, not what God wants it. uh, Because it elevates them or makes them feel good. Isaiah tells us here that the faithful can rest in God's blessing while the religious are going to know his shame. God is going to continue to to judge rebellion in Israel's future regardless of how many people it sends to counseling. So... 
Psalm 98.9 on your verse sheet says, Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equality. You know, the next thing we see in Israel's glorious future that, uh, is that God restores Israel to her land so quickly that uh, compared to the supernatural, that we have to compare it to the supernatural birth of a baby. It happens before the mother even goes into labor. Read verses 7 through 11 with me. Before she goes into labor, she gives birth. Before the pains come upon her, she delivers a son. Who has ever heard of such a thing? Who has ever seen such things? Can a country be born in a day or a nation be brought forth in a moment? Yet no sooner is Zion in labor than she gives birth to her children. Do I bring to the moment of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Do I close up the womb when I bring to delivery, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice greatly with her, all you who mourn over her. For you will nurse and be satisfied at her comforting breast. You will drink deeply and delight in her overflowing abundance. You know, back in the day, I was a labor and delivery nurse. And about once a month, we'd get a call from the emergency room to come running because someone had come in that was not going to make it up the elevator to labor and delivery. And so we would grab up an emergency delivery basin and um, go on a dead run down to the emergency room. And really, uh, most of the time, by the time you got down there, all you really had to do was catch the baby as the mother delivered on the ER stretcher. And we used to call them tennis shoe deliveries. We used to call them tennis shoe deliveries because you know what? No one ever had time to take the mother's shoes off of her before she delivered the baby you know there were other things to do and so she always delivered with her shoes on and so you would go back upstairs and say oh gosh it was another tennis shoe delivery Um, Isaiah tells us that the nation of Israel is going to come back into existence here so rapidly that it's going to be even quicker than a tennis shoe delivery Um, it's going to be painless there's going to be no sign of labor He is going to reform and repatriate the nation of Israel in the blink of an eye. You know, God always does what he promises. And when Jesus comes for the second time, remarkably, he is going to recreate the nation of Israel in Jerusalem, even though the rest of the world and the Antichrist has just spent the last seven years trying to annihilate annihilate the nation of Israel during the tribulation. And if we stop and think about how many times has the world tried to annihilate the nation of Israel? You know, you can't flip on your TV today unless you hear about the missiles that are pointed uh, as we stand right here at the nation of Israel. But not anymore. Not anymore. There's going to be great rejoicing at the supernatural work of the Lord And Israel will be so delighted uh, to be restored and repatriated uh, to Jerusalem for the final time that they're going to appear, Isaiah says here, like a baby that is nursing at the mother's breast and is comforted um, by that opportunity to be where they need to be. Warren Wiresby says this about these verses uh, here in Isaiah. Political Israel was reborn on May 14, 1948. But the new Israel will be born in a day when they believe on Jesus Christ. And that is true. The next thing that we see in Israel's glorious future is that God is going to use Israel 
to take the message of who he is to the ends of the earth. Look at verses 19 through 21 with me. I will set a sign among them and I will send some of those who survive to the nations, to Tarshish, to Libyans and Lydians, famous as archers, and to Tubal and Greece and to the distant lands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations and they will bring all your brothers from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord. On horses and chariots and wagons, on mules and camels, says the Lord, they will bring them as the Israelites bring their grain offering to the temple of the Lord in ceremonially clean vessels. And I will select some of them also to be priests and Levites, says the Lord. You know, these verses here uh, bring up an interesting new twist for uh, a nation that had previously considered being included in the family of God to be about having the correct family lineage. You had to be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Isaiah reveals here that... um, People outside the nation of Israel are going to turn to God and to accept Christ as their Savior as a result of the ministry of believing Israelites who've come to Christ themselves. They're going to go, those believing Israelites are going to be sent out into the world as missionaries to bring the truth of who Jesus is um, and God's glory to the Gentiles. You know, in today's world, we have the opposite, don't we? We have us as Gentiles trying to evangelize all of our Jewish friends. Um, But during the tribulation, following the rapture of the church, you have to remember that if the church has been taken out of the world at the beginning of the tribulation, there's not a believer left in the world, is there? There's no one here to bring the message of Jesus during the tribulation. And so thousands of Jews are going to come to faith in Christ at the beginning of the tribulation period. And most commentators believe that this passage is referring to that time and that there's going to be 144,000 Jewish missionaries, that, which is the surviving remnant of the tribulation. And during the tribulation, those 144,000 are going to be the greatest missionaries the world has ever known. And through them, everyone that comes to Christ during the tribulation is going to hear the message from the nation of Israel itself. And once that message has gone out to the Gentiles and they have become believers and they have survived the tribulation and Christ has come again, then the Gentiles are going to be the ones, we talked about this a few chapters ago, they're going to be the ones that gather up the remnant and escort them back to their homeland to repatriate them to Jerusalem um, as an offering of thanksgiving to the Lord. That's how the Gentile nations that become believers during the tribulation through the message of the Jewish nation are going to give thanks to the Lord. They're going to bring them back to Jerusalem. Okay, now in addition, verse 21, we see, tells us that the Gentile believers are going to be accepted equally with believers from the nation of Israel. And the Lord is going to bless both of them with equal privilege in his service. Um, they're going to be Gentile believers that will have the opportunity to serve the Lord in the temple according to this verse right here. And the final thing we see in Israel's glorious future is going to be that God is going to be worshipped continually by his people. Verses 22 through 24 in chapter 66. As the new heavens and the new earth that I will make 
that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord. So will your name and your descendants endure. From one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. They will go out and look upon dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. Their worm will not die, nor will their fire be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. Now, just as the new heavens and the new earth are going to endure forever, uh, so will the nation of Israel endure forever. I love that this is uh, one of the ways that Isaiah ends um, his prophecy is by assuring Isaiah, uh, Israel of that. And all mankind that remains after the Lord's judgment will worship him day in and day out, week in and week out, year in and year out. Worshiping the Lord will never stop, will never stop. Now, I told you a few weeks ago that I really like happy endings. I really like happy endings. So if I had been writing Isaiah, that's where I would have stopped. Uh, That would have been the last verse is about the fact that worship of the Lord would go on forever. I don't know that I would have included these uh, last verse here. Um, But because Isaiah's message has been one of judgment on uh, unrepentant sin, and it's the most important message he's trying to get across to the nation of Israel uh, right here. It's an important message for all of us to understand is that unrepentant sin is going to be judged by a holy God. His final words are a reminder that those who have rebelled against the Lord and have never repented are going to suffer eternal torment and damnation. The um, graphic scene that he depicts here uh, is probably a picture of the fact that the righteous dwellers that dwell in Jerusalem are going to be able to um, see the valley where the battle of Armageddon was fought and where... um, at the second coming, uh, the day of God's vengeance, those who had rebelled against the Lord and never repented uh, were slaughtered and killed, and they're going to be able to understand that um, God's eternal fire is going to be on the unrepentant forever. This final contrast of Isaiah's for us is a reminder that just as those They're going to be those that live in eternity with his blessing of the Holy One. They're going to be those who suffer in eternity because they have rebelled against the Holy One. And that's what he leaves us with here. You know, as I was studying this over the last few months, I I read a comment um, somewhere that talked about the enduring lessons of Isaiah. And I want to just end with three simple enduring lessons from Isaiah as we close. And the first one is, um, there is a God, and he is a holy God. Justice and righteousness, if we get nothing else out of Isaiah, we ought to get that justice and righteousness cannot be separated from a holy God. And he can have no part of a people that rebel against his character of holiness and justice and righteousness. Um, The second thing uh, that we should get from Isaiah as an enduring lesson is definitely that he's coming back. 
He is coming back. You know, we just celebrated Easter and the first Advent. And all of us that celebrated that knew um, with a deep commitment in our hearts that it was real. Um, It wasn't just about bunnies and eggs. It was a real um, awesome thing that it came the first time. And we can't study Isaiah without knowing for sure he is coming back. That day is coming. um, And we can watch and wait for that. And hopefully share that with everyone around us that doesn't know that and believe that. But I think the most enduring lesson we have from Isaiah is the third one, which is our eternal destiny is determined by our response to him in this life. Our eternal destiny is determined by our response to him in this life. And every person from the beginning of time to the end of time, is going to have an opportunity to determine their eternal destiny and what their response is going to be. We get to choose. We get to choose. He's been gracious enough um, to give us that opportunity. An eternity with him and his blessings, or an eternity with neither. Pray with me. Father, you are so gracious to us and you love us so much. You, uh, your mercy is new every morning in our lives. Your word is one of those mercies in my life and in the life of all these ladies. And we thank you and praise you for your word, O oh God. And I thank you for just the truth that you shared with us in Isaiah. I pray that uh, we would have these enduring lessons and more from the book of Isaiah, that um, your word would reach deep into all of our lives and would change us so that we would be more like you. We um, thank you, O God, for who you are. And I pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.